the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. I've been off the air so long that I've forgotten uh, how, just how to throw my little stone into the socio-political swamps, the chaos of the moment. Uh, I'm trying to follow the zeitgeist, and sometimes I lose the thread. Uh, the experts tell us that we should find the truth inside fictions. Yes, that's what they tell us. Fiction is the place to look for the truth. Now, I am told that the best storyteller in Washington, D.C. is a new woman in Congress. She's 29 years old. She may be, she is, what I or what we have been waiting for. You know the song, what we've been waiting for. This is it, folks. This may be it. Anyway, uh... If you're a school teacher or a historian of any kind, you may want to clip the article in Time magazine all about uh, Ocasio-Cortez, Alexandria. Yes, Alexandria. I hope they don't call her Alex. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's the cover girl on Time magazine. The issue is April. April. I hope it's not first. Oh, gosh, it is. I thought it was the second. Anyway, it's April the 1st, 2019. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Not April. Uh, Fool's Day. Anyway, she's called the Phenom. And there's a beautiful headshot. She's just awesome. It's not quite, you know, the film star breathtaking. She's just kind of an aristocrat, I guess whatever that means anymore. Uh, according to this cover on Time magazine, she's become America's lightning rod. The article is by Charlotte Alter, A-L-T-E-R. Alter, Charlotte, Time magazine, April 1st, 2019. I used to just go right ahead and copy them on my little machine and hand them out to the students, uh, I found that the textbook didn't have much much to offer, but uh, cutting out yummy articles seemed to make the kids feel that it was real, you know, because it was, it was mass media. Anyway, this woman, I don't know, I'm breathless, I'm just breathless. Uh, she's arguably the best storyteller in the party since Barack Obama. Wow, that's what it says here. She's perhaps the only Democrat right now with the star power to challenge <laughs> D.J. Trump. Anyway, of course, she is a villain to the right, and that's getting a little, little more intense. Uh, there's also the usual confusion within the Democratic Party, those who want her to go to the center and those who want her to go further left, blah, blah. What with all the usual hassles, 
I just can't believe our luck to have found this woman. Uh, let's see, three months in Congress, enough. Well, during that time, enough people, it says here, have threatened to murder this woman. The Capitol Police have uh, trained her staff, her office staff, to perform risk assessments of her visitors. Oh, my God. Anyway, of course, of course, such a person would be under attack. Uh, anyway, it was quite a shock when she beat a 10-term incumbent uh, <laughs> in the Democratic primary. She represents New York's 14th district. Unbelievable. She's the leader of all those candidates supporting her Green New Deal. Oh, you got that. That's a Green New Deal. We post that over the fridge. This woman is offering us a Green New Deal. Of course, she says it won't happen for a couple of decades. We have to think about, uh, well, we have to think about 2025. That's the little kids being born today. They should be more than ready to get uh, preschool help anyway. <laughs> the Green New Deal. Okay, she wants campaign finance to uh, go viral. Uh, she wants to help activists just banish Amazon from Queens. I don't know if you're going to do that. Anyway, uh, she thinks a couple of tweets will do it. But anyway, no lawmaker in recent history has translated so few votes into so much political and social capital so quickly. Her Twitter following has climbed from about 49,000 last summer to more than three and a half million. Thousands of people tune in to watch her make black bean soup or repot her house plants on Instagram Live. Immediately after she tweeted the name of her Signature red lipstick. It sold out online. Once again, I will repeat. I haven't had a chance to go buy it. I, apparently it sold out, but after she tweeted the name of her signature red lipstick, big, strong, bright red, uh, it sold out online. The name of that lipstick is Beso by Stella Stella, that's B-E-S-O, is the name of the lipstick, by Stella, S-T-I-L-A. Gotta get it. <laughs> At the same time, uh, this woman is a freshman legislator trying to get the hang of her first big full-time job. Kid's only 29. She says... Uh, I miss being able to go outside in sweats. Uh, she's sitting in a big black leather chair being interviewed after a long day of subcommittee hearings. She's much smaller than she looks on TV. Hmm, smaller. With a warm but a cautious manner. She says, I can't go anywhere in public and just be a person. Well, okay, you know, she's a star. She'll get used to it. Uh, she represents one vision 
of the Democratic Party's future. I would say it's my dream or vision. Uh, this is a young Hispanic woman. She has the three cornerstones of the party's electoral coalition. Uh, that is to say, she's a democratic socialist at a time when confidence in capitalism is declining, especially among progressive millennials. The issues that she ran on, the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, a federal jobs guarantee, abolishing ICE, all these are animating a new generation of Democrats. Oh, boy, oh, boy. She's a political phenomenon, part activist, part legislator, arguably the best storyteller, right? Then they go on to talk about her talent, compare it to President Obama. Uh, hmm. She's become a hero on the left and a villain on the right. She's replaced Hillary Clinton as the preferred punching bag of Fox News pundits and Republican lawmakers. The hits are taking their toll. Uh, public opinion, yes, it's going this way and that way. They go on to give you all the results of all the polls. And apparently, mm, apparently she's under heavy barrage from the right wing uh, pundits, voices. Uh, here's what she says. She says, an entire generation came of age and never saw American prosperity. Now think about that for a minute. Uh, <laughs> I'm 85, and I, I guess, you know, great-great-grandchildren uh, are standing right out there in front of me on the sidewalk, and I I panic. Uh, anyway, this goes on and on about the swings in her uh, popularity and uh, basically, though, about the long range. I call it the long haul plan. Uh, once again, I'm uh, reading to you from an article, uh, 1st of April 2019, Time Magazine. The cover girl, the cover girl is... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I'm going to send her a package of fun stuff, you know. Laughter, laughter is the Vaseline that makes the ideas penetrate, you know, in the brain, in the brain, pardon me, of course. Uh, <laughs> she says that she knows that her uh, policy policy debates have no ch well you know I, I i guess i guess uh she says that her primary challengers are moderate and conservative democrats okay oh that's a little hard now i don't know i i wanted to go do what bernie sanders did and uh i, I think that while she threatens the status quo, she brings this youthful impatience, you see, to a set of policies that are, well, they were populated by Bernie Sanders, the Medicare for all, all those good things. But how will she do well? Apparently, you know how it is when you want to pass a bill. You get it started and 
you wait a lifetime, and then maybe, maybe, uh, maybe it helps matters. Uh, oh gosh, I don't know. I keep thinking of how we had that lurch to the right so many years ago, and then another lurch, and then a kind of a slow crawl back to the left. It's so hard to explain uh, this business of winning hearts and minds. Uh, now, it says here that hers is the politics of the possible, not the practical. By the time legislation actually gets through, it's five years from now, she says. So everything we introduce needs to have 2025, uh, or our kids in mind. Uh, she's not thinking about how to keep the Democratic majority for another two years. She's thinking about how to define the agenda for the next two decades. Now, it's a big change in a party that spent the last 10 years following incremental leaders like Obama and Hillary Clinton. I keep thinking of it as, you know, crawling, inching towards progress. Uh, this woman has recast the division between left and center as a tug of war between the party's past and its future. Got that? Now, there's always this talk about division within the Democratic Party, ideological differences, she says. But I actually think they are generational distances, yes. The difference between, well, let's say my generation and then Hillary's generation and <laughs> and this young woman's generation, wow, uh, Yes, she says, the America that we grew up in is nothing like the America our parents or our grandparents grew up in. Tell me about it. Every day I walk down the street and I look around and I visualize or imagine my mother and father walking with me and what they would see and what they would say and how they would feel. Uh, they were both born in 1902. And I keep thinking that, in a way, they would know that but this was inevitable. They would see uh, from their distant viewpoint that we had definitely, definitely taken a lurch to the right. And all the while, we're not medieval. We're, oh, let's call it uh, uh, early Victorian, late Victorian, uh, Dickensian, yes. The little stuff is like a novel by Charlie uh, Dickens, good old Charlie Dickens. But frankly, uh, problems are too big for that. Uh, the Dickensian uh, plan was to take brown paper bags, you know, and go give charity or something, and let the fellows that have the uh, power to dish out the jobs, they, they will give parties and give their employees a little extra money. That's not going to do it. Not going to do it. Uh, anyway, this wonderful woman, this new congresswoman, uh, uh, she has a, an article. Well, she, she has a pile of things on her desk that are very interesting. Uh, uh, up on her bookshelf, you will find two books nestling together in uneasy union, 
One is the Federalist Papers. Remember that? The Federalist Papers, written mostly by James Madison and Alexander Hamilton and published in 1788. Now, it's not that long ago, but it, it, it's a while. It depends on your point of view. If you're on the Supreme Court, it's a big deal anyway. Uh, the Federalist Papers were published in 1788. The other book is The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. This book is written by a journalist, David Wallace Wells. David Wallace Wells wrote this book 231 years after the Federalist Papers. Uh, once again, the title of that one is The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Soylent Green, Soylent Green. Remember the movie Soylent Green? Where they were all living on little green crackers. The crackers were made of uh, uh, corpses. The human dead were uh, recycled and made into crackers. And that was Soylent Green. Uh, that movie is pretty old now, but it still knocks me for a loop. It has Edward G. Robinson and Charlton Heston. Terrific picture. Uh, I think they should show it to high school students once a week. <laughs> yes, just put it up there in front of the class. Uh, anyway, uh, it, it's not altogether accurate, but it, it's definitely got some punch uh, Let's see now. What else have we got in this woman's office? A picture of Wonder Woman leans in one corner of the office. A giant cardboard cutout of Cardi B's face in another. On her desk are handwritten crib sheets for a February earring. I'm going to be the bad guy, she writes in pencil. More than 40 million people watched a subsequent uh, Now This News clip of her questioning a government accountability watchdog about campaign finance laws. Oh, give me a break. Give me a break. That stuff is so, so tiresome. Yes, political economy. Little girl in a play by Oscar Wilde. She says, I know I always look quite plain when I've been reading political economy. <laughs> anyway, this new Wonder Woman, uh, Ocasio-Cortez, was born in 1989. Now think that one over. <laughs> if you're what, even middle-aged, ask yourself, where were you in 1989? I remember that I'd had nine years of Ronald Reagan, well, eight. Uh, I counted the, the lurch to the right, the, the hole in the bottom of things. I counted that from 1980. My oldest son was nine, and I was worried. Uh, he obviously <laughs> was down, going down the path of, what is that, well, materialists, uh, materialism, oh yes. The great god Moloch 
dogs biting, biting all of us. How much did you earn? You go to college, and how much does that mean? You you could, uh, what's the word? Uh, how much money would you have when you died? The person with the most stuff at the moment she or he expires. That's the winner. Now, that's a tough one, but it still holds true of many people, yes. I was thinking, uh, this woman, this woman at least understands, she understands things down to the bone. Her Puerto Rican mother cleaned houses. Her dad owned a small architecture company. Her parents were deeply rooted in the neighborhood, but also very wary of its limitations. Ocasio-Cortez has told friends that she learned early that wearing hoop earrings and nameplate necklaces was <laughs> fine in the Bronx, but you know, she wouldn't be taken seriously if she wore those things to a job interview. Oh, yes. My mother said, don't you dare pierce your ears. That's a class marker. My goodness, a class marker? I didn't get my ears pierced until uh, sometime in the 1970s. <laughs> it's a long story, a very funny story. I'll save it, but pierced ears. Wow. Nameplate necklaces. I I can't remember. I just remember all the kids had them. Uh, anyway. Her family moved to the prosperous Westchester County suburb of Yorktown Heights when she was about five so that she and her siblings, her brother and sister, could, what is it, have a more favorable environment where all of us moving up, moving up to the east side, the west side, you, you've seen it all on television. Uh, anyway, better schools are all fighting for better schools. However, they returned frequently to see the rest of their family. Uh, it was a 40-minute drive, and it taught her how zip code determines destiny. Oh, I thought it was biology. Anyway, zip code determines destiny. That's what this new congresswoman says. By the time she was in college... Some of her cousins were already having kids. There you go. We know. I recently had a, a chance to go over to Mills College for a, a little talk fest, and I was stunned to see the number of women in class, uh, undergraduates, with their babies on their backs, or, you know, in their backpacks. Babies, yes, going to school. Uh, they weren't old enough, obviously, for daycare, but uh, <laughs> I I can't tell you how shocking that is to somebody like me. Uh, they wouldn't even let us have pets in college, never mind. Uh, this young woman often joined her mom to clean the houses of the neighbors, and she wrote her college application essay about the two of them 
helping a man who had lost his wife the only way they could. They helped by cleaning out his fridge. I, I don't know why that stays with me, but it is true that is the kindest thing you can do. Uh, a widower has lost his wife. What could they do? They could go and clean out his fridge. <laughs> anyway, uh, this woman does describe herself as a dorky kid. And uh, she even asked for a microscope for her birthday. Oh, dear me. Uh, let's see. Her 2007 high school microbiology project on the effects of antioxidants on the lifespan of round worms. <laughs> One second place in the microbiology category at the Intel International Sciences and Engineering Fair. You got that? That's a real mouthful. <laughs> this girl got second place, you know, for her paper on the effects of antioxidants on the lifespan of roundworms. There you go. This is a serious, serious woman. Uh, anyway, when she was a teenager, her father was diagnosed with lung cancer. Uh, just before she returned to Boston for her sophomore year. She went to see him in the hospital. I didn't know that it was going to be the last time that I talked to my dad, but toward the end of our interaction, I started to feel like it was. I said goodbye, but I think he knew, and I knew, and so I started to leave. And he kind of hollered out, and I turned around in the door frame, and he said, Hey, make me proud. What a wonderful dad she had, anyway. The article states that he died about a week later, uh, in the fall of 2008. The death plunged the family into financial trouble, just as the economy was melting down. Her mother picked up a job driving school buses, staving off foreclosure on their home. After graduation, uh, she decided that, you know, uh, maybe, maybe she better go to work, and so she moved back to the Bronx to work at an educational nonprofit. Uh, <laughs> she even had a side gig as a bartender at a Manhattan taco joint. Most of her peers were piecing together two or three jobs to stay ahead of the bills. <laughs> Spoiler alert! The gig economy is about not giving people full-time jobs, she says. So it should be no secret why millennials want to decouple their insurance status from your employment status. Now, all of this, I suppose, is, uh, what do you call it, down-to-earth uh, stuff. It's all the sort of things that uh, I keep hearing on the radio 
It's always all about money, and I don't know why it's so difficult, so complicated to talk about rich and poor, obviously. That's what it's all about, boys and girls. You got the haves, you got the haves a little, you got the haves a lot, and you have got those who got it all. They're called the 1%, I believe. I love the notion that all of us are in the 95%, but basically, we are. The little book lying around that I used, oh, so many years ago, it's called The Rich and the Super Rich, and I used to read it to my little high school students, and they would all say, that's it, that's it, ma'am, you got it. Emma's got it, gets it. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till next time, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. You were invited to a poetic conversation at Rumi's Caravan to celebrate world poetic traditions on July 13th from 7 to 10 p.m. at the Unitarian Church, 685 14th Street, Oakland. For 20 years, Rumi's Caravan has inspired audiences weaving together poems by Rumi, Hafiz, Machado, Rilke, Yeats, Mary Oliver, and many others in an improvised, recited poetic conversation with musical accompaniment. Moving through moods of prayer and grief to humor and celebration, the caravan always highlights the beauty of the spoken word. This performance benefits the Middle East Children's Alliance and is wheelchair accessible. Tickets can be purchased from